standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Happy Sunday and all that. And welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. As you may or may not know, this month marks the 50th anniversary of the Misuse of Drugs Act. And I'm going to just say right here at the top that this isn't something I can even pretend to be impartial about. Drugs policy, or the war on drugs as it has been called, has not helped in the last century. In fact, there's a very good argument for saying that it's hindered. And in this week's Chops, Jane Salter of the campaign group Transform Drugs is making that exact good argument. We chat about the pressure UK drugs law puts on the justice system, prisons and health services, as well as communities and individuals. We talk about why we've fallen so far behind other countries when it comes to marijuana policy and also why a law that is not enforced equally shouldn't be enforced at all. Whether you agree with Jane and I, I know you'll find her as informative and interesting as I did. Until next week. I think the place to start is, can you tell me what Transform Drugs is and why you personally got involved in this field? Thanks for having me on. My name's Jane Slater. I'm the Deputy Chief Executive Officer at Transform Drug Policy Foundation. We are a charity and think tank working for more just and effective drug laws. We essentially think that drugs need to be viewed as a health issue rather than a criminal justice one. And we work for the controlled regulation of the drugs market. I also run a campaign called Anyone's Child, Families for Safe Drug Control, which is a campaign telling the real human stories of those who have been impacted by our failed drug laws and really trying to bring out the lived experience, put the humans back into drug policy and tell their real lived experience. So it's often families who have lost loved ones to drug use. And why did I personally get involved in this? It's not sort of that obvious answer. As an 18-year-old, I was lucky enough to travel a bit and I ended up teaching in a school in, in the middle of a drug production area in India. And very soon afterwards, I went to university and I got to study in Amsterdam University. And I think these two experiences, which happened quite close together in my life, made me reflect on how looking at, say, the drug cannabis, you've got very different policy responses to this one drug. So you have death penalty for production where I was living versus a coffee shop model for for use in Amsterdam. And I thought, wait, this is the same drug, but our policy response is very different. Mm. And I, I, I was also at Manchester while studying in Amsterdam. And I, I watched all my student friends from Manchester University come over to Amsterdam, desperate to get high, where I watched the Dutch students with a much more sort of pragmatic and sensible approach to the same drug. And I thought, oh, this is a little bit more complicated than how strict our enforcement policy towards it is. And I think that that sort of started me on a bit of a journey of learning and understanding about drug policy. And I've now been doing this work nearly nearly 15 years and working with the families in, in anyone's child has really solidified my interest and commitment to this issue. That's interesting. When I was that age, you know, university age, I was very pro-drugs but I have to say that came from an utter selfishness that, that I thought why should I be criminalized for doing something that I'm doing that's fun 
My opinion is still exactly the same. We need to stop making people criminals because they do something that is, for many people, a rite of passage or a perfectly normal part of growing that doesn't then go on to lead to them to do something that is much, much worse. For some people it will, but for a lot of people it's just what happens. Yeah, and 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 I think an important point in there is that, of course, ninety percent of, of of use of these substances is, of course, non problematic. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think that fact does often get get lost in this conversation. Now, for most of our listeners and me, the Misuse of Drugs Act, being fifty, it's all we've known. Could you maybe explain to us, sort of, in the best case scenario, what the the Misuse of Drugs Act was hoping to achieve before we go into where it has failed? What was it replacing and what was the hope when this policy came in 50 years ago? The Misuse of Drugs Act was ratified back in 1971 in May. Um, Basically what that set in place was the prohibitionist system that we currently have. As you say, it's been in place for 50 years. And its goal was really to ban the production, supply and use of certain drugs, so drugs such as heroin, cocaine, MDMA, cannabis, psilocybin, mushrooms, etc., It put the Home Secretary in charge of drugs and it established the ABC category system that we now have. I think probably most notably is that it excludes alcohol and tobacco, two drugs. So I think there is a a very valid thing that it it, it wasn't scientific in the way it was set up because those, those are clearly drugs. But it is no doubt one of the most toxic pieces of legislation that we have seen. And it came about, I think, in large part due to the pressure from America. It was the President Nixon era. He was very much championing this war on drugs, hard line enforcement based approach to drugs. And it became a real sort of political issue that needed to be adopted much more internationally. Actually, before the Misuse of Drugs Act was passed, we had a fairly pragmatic approach to drugs in the UK. I think it's quite interesting to look at heroin as an example of why the misuse of drugs has been so catastrophic for the UK. So if you look in the early 1970s, just before the Misuse of Drugs Act came into to being, we had around 1,000 problematic heroin users or long-term users of heroin in the UK. A 1,000? Yeah. And most of these could get heroin from their doctor. So these heroin users were able to carry about fairly normal lives. They'd go to work or college, look after their children. But as part of an average day, they would go to a doctor where they would receive their prescription of heroin, which enabled them to live fairly stabilised lives. So as soon as the Misuse of Drugs Act came in, we started to abolish what was known as the British system, And we started criminalising and prohibiting the use of heroin. What has happened as a result of that? Well, the number of heroin users has skyrocketed. We went from about 1,000 users in 1970 to over 300,000 users just 10 years later, so within a decade. If you'd been trying to do that deliberately, you wouldn't have expected that level of success Yeah, and all of these 300,000 users were getting their supply of heroin from organised criminals or gangs on the streets. So we were watching users getting drugs of poor quality at hugely inflated prices 
And the result, we saw almost inevitably a massive explosion in drug-related crime and violence. So uh, soaring rates of robbery and competition oversupply of this highly lucrative trade leading to turf wars and a lot of the perhaps misery that we might associate with the drugs trade today. So really, I mean, (laughs) I think that demonstrates why handing these incredibly or potentially very dangerous substances to an organised crime market is really the worst people to control what can be very dangerous substances. Our drug deaths here in the UK have never been at higher levels than they are today. Every year I get the really depressing job of writing the press release around our drug stats. And every year for the last, I think probably 10 years, we have witnessed growing year-on-year levels. So we're now recording over 4,300 drug-related deaths in the UK. And Scotland has the highest related uh, rate of drug-related deaths in the whole of Europe. Do we have any idea of what it's cost us in terms of pressures on the Justice Department, on policing, on prisons? Do we have any idea of, of how much trying to stop people taking drugs, how much money we're wasting pursuing this policy? Can I give you some stats on this? Yes, certainly. This back section. People in the UK spend around £10 million on illegal drugs each year, which is roughly the same as they spend on footwear. Um, the cost to a society of illegal drugs is around 20 billion per year whereas only 600 million is spent on treatment for people with drugs issues we estimate that the world drug market is worth at least 321 billion at retail level in terms of the impact on the prison population about 15 percent of the uk prison population is people accused or convicted of drug offenses and about a quarter of unsentenced people in prison. It's estimated a fifth of people in prison worldwide are there for drug offences. And then you also, of course, get the disproportionality of the policing. So if you're black in the UK, Mm. you are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs than if you are white, even though rates of use are actually higher amongst white people. So, you know, whichever lens you start to look at this, from our overflowing prisons to our record levels of drug-related deaths to the enormous societal health harms that this policy is causing and to the fact that we are essentially spending a lot of money trying to enforce what is an unenforceable policy, I think you can conclude that it is failing catastrophically, in particular for the poorest and most marginalised in our society. Any law that is not applied equally isn't worth having in this country. If you get a situation where you can be uh, young, white, middle class, well, not even young. In fact, I would say the older that you are, the less likely you are to be pursued by the police. Middle class guy who gets picked up at some event with cocaine in his pocket and the police aren't going to get called in that situation but if you're in the park as a young muslim man with your friends and you get picked up with marijuana in your pocket you will be treated entirely differently and i think if that's the way a law is applied it's not worth applying to be honest well i totally agree and 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 i would say you know my work with anyone's child which you know i tragically hear from families impacted you know through the most tragic stories every week i'm on the phone to someone i think you know really there is 
I think our media has done a sort of very good job of really othering who is a drug user. You yeah, know, every absolutely. image you see is someone in a hoodie in a back street. It's quite a threatening scene. Whereas the families I'm meeting, you know, it crosses class, religion, race. You know, there are people in small cities, villages, towns, big cities. Really, I think we've been like ostracized with the approach to drugs. You know, none of us quite want to accept that it is as close and on our doorsteps as we might like to think. Yeah. And I think that is the stigma around this issue. And I think we need to just open our eyes and go, look, it doesn't matter who you are. This is impacting all of us. This is an issue everywhere. And therefore we need to look at it. And how do we make drugs safer for our young people and keep people safe and alive? I worked at local newspapers for years and years and we had on one of the papers that I worked on in Cambridge we had a a man I wish I could remember his name now whose son had died he was quite middle class his son had died of a a heroin overdose and he was campaigning for the legalization of, of all drugs and we talked to him quite a lot about stuff and I know that there were people in the office who patently didn't understand where he was coming from because they're like hang on if it killed his son why would he want it to be legal but we also had another story I can remember. I remember coming, someone coming into conference with a story about a father who had been arrested buying heroin. He was in his, I'd say he was in his 50s. He told the police he was buying it for his son. And, and we were having a conference and I was like, we've got to talk to him. We've got to go and talk to that guy and find out why he was buying heroin for his son. Because there'd be a really good story in there. I mean, there might not be. There might be an outside chance that it was a terrible excuse he was using in an attempt to get round the police. I said, but it's more likely he was attempting to protect his son than he was attempting to damage his son. And I had a conversation, like I say, I was in a room with a bunch of journalists and everybody looked at me like I was mad when I was saying that. And I thought, God, we're the problem. We really are the problem here. Attitudes from the public come from the media. They come from government. I mean, maybe not so much now because they also come from social media, but... I just thought we're doing so much damage. And time and time again, I said, can we stop using the word junkie and start using the word addicts, please? It's really, really important. So, yeah, I I 100% agree. The media has a lot of responsibility in the way that people see this problem. Let's talk about reform. If I only had one question to ask to you today... The one question I would have picked was, why the hell are we so far behind the rest of the world when it comes to marijuana? I have enjoyed having a spliff for years. We have not moved on any in the attitudes towards it, or maybe in the attitudes, but certainly not in the law towards it. And yet, if you look up what's happening in Canada, in America, all over the world, people are making progress on marijuana and it's just not happening here. And I think it's important because I think it's the first step it's the first paving stone on the way to changing drug policy in this country would you agree with anything that I said there yep and I think it's a really interesting question of which I have a really messy answer for you (laughs) because it is quite a complicated picture and I think I think it's really interesting what reform has happened and why that reform has happened because there's a real patchwork picture that we can see of cannabis reform around the world and as you rightly identify it it's really exciting. This is an issue that has massively flipped. And and it has flipped quite quickly, because I can say, when I started working in this area 15 years ago, it was not on the political table at all. 
And people said, you're utterly mad doing this work. I mean, it's never going to change. Yeah. And what we have witnessed is real world reform. And so that, that makes me very positive. But I also would be inclined to agree that the UK has gone from perhaps being a leader in the world of drug policy, which I think it, it, it was. There was the heroin-assisted treatment that I spoke about earlier, but also I think the UK has had a really pioneering role in harm reduction globally. So, for example, the UK pioneered needle syringe exchange, which means we were further ahead than a lot of Europe, which is now introducing a lot of these kinds of measures. Mm. So, again, it's a, it's a patchwork picture. So let's look at where reform has happened. So the first place to legalise cannabis was Uruguay, right? And this is interesting because it came about because the president went against public opinion and said, I'm going to legalise cannabis because it's the right thing to do. And he just did it. And he opened up a government monopoly of the cannabis market on the grounds that it would help to eradicate organised crime. Yeah. Okay, so little's known about that experiment, but I think it's an interesting one because it's a much less capitalist, business-oriented model than some of the other models. But North America's got its own dynamics. So they haven't actually legalised at the federal level, it's just at the state level. And we're watching more and more states going into legalising recreational use of cannabis. Well, New York just the other day. Incredibly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and New York is particularly interesting Right, basically, these are passing via ballot initiative. So this is done by bottom-up processes. People can vote on whether they legalise cannabis. And I think one of the reasons that we have witnessed it take off so much in North America is partly because use levels are higher, partly because there's a very established medical cannabis market, and that had almost blurred what was recreational and what was medical. Mm. They're moving, you know, the dispensaries were nearly set up already in every city. So just switching them over to recreational was a very sort of subtle move in a way that perhaps that would be more of a step in the UK from where we're at. And I think also that sort of libertarian thinking is a lot more prevalent Mm. over there, all of which I think have helped to propel it. Now, you said about New York. Now, I think that's fascinating because, as I say, they have these ballot initiatives. And actually, the first ballot initiative they did on cannabis legalisation didn't pass because it didn't incorporate enough social equity and racial equity policies within it. Right. And it has now passed because they've gone back and looked at how do you recompensate particularly black communities who've been so impacted by cannabis prohibition as part of the way it's legalised. So that, I mean, that's really a, a, a very progressive development, I think. Yeah. In the election, it got lost a bit because, of course, you know, the election was such a big story. I mean, the 2020 American election. In amongst all of the other things, there were a couple of stories that, that got missed, one of which was California voting against giving Uber drivers employment rights, which I was livid and no one was talking about because obviously it was all about Trump. But in Oregon... They voted to decriminalise all drugs. Yeah. Which is mind-blowing, to be honest. Well, catching up with Portugal, he did it 20 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's another way of looking at it. No, but as you say, it's really a a sign of how this issue is flipping very quickly. 
Well, I suppose when I say mind blowing, I mean it is Oregon, and you're right. If it was, if Oregon didn't have that, you know, Portland and that huge left wing progressive movement, it, you know, this wouldn't have happened in Alabama. So obviously, it's to do with demographics and all of that. But in many ways, America is so much more socially conservative than we are that I find it just really startling that that we are behind them and. I went to America a couple of years ago with my mum. We were visiting some family friends. We're driving around New England. And there were signs everywhere, literally signs everywhere, saying, come and buy your weed here. I said to my mum, would you feel differently about me smoking weed because it's legal here than you would about me doing it at home where it's illegal? Or would your concern still be the same? Because I thought it was an interesting social experiment whether or not she would be concerned about your people smoking weed if it wasn't illegal. And I tell you what, there's nothing like making you want to have a spliff than driving around America for three weeks with your mum. And she said actually it did make her feel differently about it. it she didn't realise it was the fact that it was illegal which was which was worrying her about, you know, young people and drugs. But actually the thought that it was within a framework that they wouldn't end up with legal repercussions made her much more reassured about the idea that, you know, some people like a spliff. I think that's really interesting. And, I, you know, I think, again, if you take the example of cannabis, like, if you look at what we've done through the prohibition of cannabis, right? So if you look at the UK market, it's now dominated by skunk cannabis of, you know, much higher strengths than what it used to be. Yeah. And why has that happened? We used to get most of our cannabis from Morocco or Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? There yeah. traditional areas. It was more hash-based. There was better balances between your THC, CBD ratios, etc. But nowadays we are growing most of the cannabis in the UK itself. Most of it's grown under hydroponic lights. Yeah. There is an economic incentive for people involved in the market or the organised criminals involved in the market to make it of as higher potency so that they can maximize profit right health and well-being is not at the forefront of someone who is trying to make money out of an illicit drug so this is one of the many reasons we would argue you need to regulate it because then you can start to look properly at what ratios of these compounds are the most safe how can you reduce the harms of the market? So should you be encouraging people to vape rather than to mm. smoke with tobacco, for example? These are the conversations we should actually be having. Perhaps we should cap the market at X percent potency, you know, or we put more regulations on higher potency products. These are the kinds of regulations you can start to look at and safety mechanisms you can start to employ once it is within the legal market. I know a lot of people have watched the, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, the Netflix documentary, which is called Murder Mountain, which is about the impact of the legalisation of marijuana on the growing community in Humboldt County, California, which is where most of America's weed is grown. But that's not what our market is here. That, Like you say, that's not how it's grown here. I worked at Papers. What it is is a house that's been rented out and filled from head to toe with, with plants and one guy in there... And when it gets raided, that one guy gets put in prison and then deported. And they're often victims or in extreme, you know, they're a victim of exploitation. Exactly. So what you are doing when you are buying marijuana here is you are putting money into the hands of people who are also trafficking people and doing terrible things. Whereas if you grow some weed in your kitchen on your kitchen windowsill, 
I don't understand why that should be illegal when you are actually, by doing that, you are taking money away from criminals just by doing it yourself. You're becoming a self-contained little unit. So it, it just, it blows my mind. Although I know that in some police forces, they're now saying, you know, we won't bother people if they have any less than two, but that's not something that's being equally applied across the country either, is it? Yeah, exactly. And we see a real patchwork of how different police forces are enforcing these policies. But, you know, to answer your question again is why is the UK so behind? Canada obviously legalised cannabis when Trudeau was elected. Mexico passed it through strategic litigation. So I suppose my positive is there is a whole array of ways that legalisation has occurred and likely we will continue to see a whole patchwork of different ways of which you can regulate it emerging of which will produce some very rich evidence around how you can do it best the other thing i think is the medical cannabis that was a debate that was completely nascent in the uk Mm. um, until 2018 where it almost popped up and surprised a lot of reformers in the movement because it flipped very very quickly it was in a matter of weeks that you got the combination of some very heart-wrenching stories of of children who were unable to get their medicines. And you literally watched a whole series of MPs suddenly come out in support of reform. I know going to meet MPs that many MPs behind closed doors are in support of reform. They understand how our drug wars are failing. But I still think there is a fear amongst many that speaking out on this issue is still not safe. They're terrified of the Daily Mail. What Mm. are they going to do tomorrow if I say this today? Won't that dominate the headlines? Won't that detract away from the serious point I'm trying to make? So I think that is one of the issues that we've got to overcome. I think we're starting to do that. I think public opinion is starting to come on side of reform. I think we've got over 50% in support now of cannabis regulation. And I think that politicians will start to take note that, that perhaps that attack isn't as real as they have perceived it to be or fear it might be and with all those sort of shifts as the world moves it is coming to europe now cannabis legalization this week we there was an announcement in switzerland that they are looking to pilot legal recreational use and production netherlands is looking to address its production issues that you know it's coming closer and closer to home i i really do believe it is inevitable that that cannabis will be legalised in the UK in a matter of time. You've made me feel quite positive about that. Just to revisit something you said about, you know, maybe we should, or not maybe, we should be telling people, if you're going to smoke it, don't smoke it with tobacco, because obviously, you know, tobacco is a very dangerous drug. Alcohol is a very dangerous drug. Prescription medication are very dangerous drugs. In my personal experience, the damage I have seen done by those three things is incredible. It baffles me that particularly alcohol and I have a my dad was killed by alcohol it it staggers me that alcohol as the most dangerous drug I mean so many places like scales that it's put on and I was talking to Jonathan Ashworth whose dad was also an alcoholic about it and you know if you take into account the damage done to the family and the financial damage and, and all of that alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world and yet it is legal 
And I suppose that hypocrisy is what drives me and what makes me feel passionate about this issue. Because the other alternative would be to make alcohol illegal. But I, I don't agree with that because it also doesn't work. But I fail to see why we're not treating all drugs the same in this country. Well, Hannah, I completely agree with you. I, I do believe we need to regulate all drugs better. Like, I think we have a very unhealthy attitude in this country towards legal drugs you know alcohol is positively promoted you want to go and have a good night out with your work colleagues yeah. see the drink you can get you know up until only a few years ago footballers were running around advertising the stuff we can't seem to get ingredients list put on the side of bottles that's very bizarre when all other food products have it you know putting calories on the side of alcohol products you know i know that's being debated at the moment but that's been strangely a uh, controversial yeah and I, I believe all those need to be looked at and I think I'm I would entirely agree with you around alcohol there's a lot of work still to be done there but I think tobacco perhaps is a more clear picture of paving the way of how you can better regulate so we've watched a lot of innovations around regulation on tobacco in recent years you've now got the shutters when you go to buy them the packets have got the health warnings on them it's moved from 18 to 21. We've banned smoking inside. These are the kinds of regulations you can look at, right? And you can actually, once it's a legal market, you can look at the data and the evidence of which ones of these regulations are actually working and decreasing the harms caused by users, right? And that, yeah. that's ultimately what we're after is the least harm to people. We need to get all these drugs into the legal framework and then look at what regulations we can employ to make them safer. Now, I also want to make the point that I don't think regulating drugs is a panacea. I think there are many bigger issues in our society around inequalities, well-being and so on that, of course, will mean that people continue to use substances problematically, be they legal or illegal, but I think that if we have a health-centred approach towards looking at these substances, we are much more likely to help people to really seek help and regain connections and assistance with their problems than if we look at it through an enforcement lens, which is doing the exact opposite. So some of the families that I work with, their children, when they got in problems, Amory Coburn, who lost her 15-year-old daughter to MDMA, when her daughter was struggling in a park, her friends were terrified to call for help. Like, that, that is not acceptable in the modern day and is entirely a harm caused by the illegal status of the drug. People can't be terrified that that will impact on their life chances by doing what is essentially saving a life. So Yeah. And, and then you get situations where, and again, I've covered these in stories, where you get... Like a kid, and he's been the one kid that's been sent to get everyone an E because they're all going to Glastonbury and something happens, and then he becomes the dealer. And you're like, he's not the dealer. He's the kid that had a car and could drive there or offered. It, it kind of criminalises what is essentially is the guy who stood up to buy the round, if you looked at it through the, the lens of alcohol. That's a horrible thing for a young person to have to live with for the rest of their life. Yeah, and the impact of that can be so real. I, I One of the families I work with, that is the story. And to this date, 25 years after that criminal record, the man hasn't managed to reach his employment potential. 
He's got a master's degree, but he's selling wood carvings because of, of partly because of self self stigma and shame. Yeah, I really, I, you know, and not to mention the impact on the on the wider family of that. Yeah, Jane, this has been so interesting. If people would like to find out more about you, or maybe do something that's in some way going to assist perhaps the progression of our drugs law, how would you suggest they went about that? Okay, well, thank you. So I think, first of all, please, we're running a major campaign this year in, for the 50th anniversary of the Misuse of Drugs Act. All the details are available on our website, www.transformdrugs.org. Please do check it out. But if there is one thing that people should do, and I always say this, but I will repeat myself, it is write to your MP. If you agree, write to your MP and tell them. That is the way our democratic system works. We need MPs to see that the public are shifting on this. And we know that once MPs get enough call to take interest in this issue, then they start to switch their opinions on this. So please, please, we've got a template letter available on our website. Take a look at it, fill it in. We'll be heading to Parliament on the 27th of October this year. So come along and join us and we'll go and meet our MPs and show them to get themselves on the right side of history around this and we will change this and also just have conversations with your friends let's start to speak about this issue that's been a taboo for so long i think people will finally start having conversations it's amazing how many people do agree with us so um let's keep spreading the word and and i do feel positive that this is this is a changeable issue and it will make the lives of, of many people much better and the world a better place Standard issue for all women.